0: Welcome to Day Beautiful. My name is Adam Vitkavage, and this is a podcast where you can discover debut authors through in-depth interviews about their life, their creativity, their craft, and everything in between. If you like what you hear here, you can support Day Beautiful by buying a Day Beautiful t-shirt at daybeautiful.net slash shop. You can also follow us at Day Beautiful on all social medias like Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, maybe even Pinterest one day. Today's guest has received degrees from San Francisco State University in creative writing, where he now teaches full-time. His work has been published in numerous places like The Advocate, Gwyn The Atlantic Monthly, Foglifter, Lumina Magazine, and many, many, many more. He is the author of the debut book, Doubting Thomas, which is out now via Amble Press. His name is Matthew Clark Davison. Hey, Matthew. How are you doing today?
1: Well, um, hi, Adam. And first of all, just let me thank you so much for having me. Uh, me on the show. I'm thrilled to be here. I love so many of your episodes. Um, You know, my husband and I moved to move during COVID, which I think you did too. Yes. And uh, um, so I am now a several month um, resident of Oakland, California, after having spent decades in San Francisco, and it's going really, really well. We
0: love it. Yeah. That's great. When I went to the Bay Area, ooh, I guess it was almost a decade ago now. I can't believe that. Um, I really liked Oakland a lot better than San Francisco, just like the, the food and the bars and everything. Uh, more you know, my speed.
1: It, it's interesting because I um, have loved Oakland for decades, but just the, the different things that I did for work in San Francisco made it tricky to imagine my life here. But um, you know, we were uh, pretty lucky during the pandemic because both of us were able to continue working. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, things changed around the commute. So we were able to to move here. And we're, we're, we're enjoying it so much as residents too.
0: Yeah. And your book, uh, Downing Thomas is coming out on Amble Press. Well, it'll be out by the time this podcast is out. Um, tell readers about doubting Thomas, what it's about. And then, um, yeah, we'll dive into some questions about it.
1: Sure, yeah, thanks. Doubting Thomas is a novel that begins kind of with a scandal, although for years uh, as I worked on the book, there was a complete chapter that was one sentence, and that sentence was, he didn't do it. Um, it starts with a, a, a young fourth grader in Thomas McGurin's um, class, he's a teacher at a fancy private school in Portland, Oregon, um, Has gets flustered and his pants fall, fall down, and he can't quite Uh, pick them back up, which is really unusual for a fourth grader. He just got sort of, um, you know, stunned in a certain way. And Thomas's teacher went and helped him pick up his pants. And he went home and told his parents that Thomas touched my pants. And um, this sort of sets off a flurry of uh, panic within the community, which is very liberal. And Thomas is an out gay guy, but it still sort of ruins his life. And you know, all of this really very very quickly into the novel it's in in fact it starts a year ahead of uh, the action and then sort of flashes back and so on the surface it's about sort of what happens after a person has to live with the fact that he has been sort of um he's been um seen differently than how he sees himself in a very extreme way and how do human beings deal with having to go on and live their life when they know that their community might see them differently than how they see themselves. So on, on one hand, it's about that, but really I also think that it's a, a novel about brothers. I was completely inspired by Justin Torres's novel, We the Animals, when it came out. And um, I was just, because of the strength of that novel, um, left wondering about that trio of brothers, one queer. And so I am one of three brothers and started so I, I had been wanting to write about that but uh, avoiding it too. And so we the animals started me in the notebook and um, so I really think that I at least I attempted for the novel to be about uh, family as much as the scandal mm-hmm.
0: And so we the animals was kind of a, a jumping off point or, or something that like put a kernel of an idea in your head um, as the Stouting Thomas started becoming more of a book and you were rewriting, did you, I guess, when did the idea of the scandal come in? If you wanted to write about family and the brothers, when did this part of it come in for it?
1: I had been, uh, I was in a work situation where I was uh, visiting a, a grade school, mm-hmm. and uh, um, afterwards I had. Um, overheard a conversation between an administrator and a another visitor at this grade school where the visitor who is a good person and a kind person and in many ways a very liberal person out in the world saw a teacher touch a student and told the administrator that he thought that the teacher had touched the boy inappropriately And so, of course, everyone there was like immediately concerned. And, you know, there's also laws in California that say that if something inappropriate happens, you are mandated to report it. Like people that go into the classroom are mandated reporters. And so this administrator was highly, 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 highly skilled in how she handled the situation and asked uh, a bunch of very um, smart questions. And it turned out that this person um, had seen a teacher touch the shoulders of a fourth grade boy, but he kept saying um, the teacher was flamboyant, like he was just so like he, and so it it sort of came out that he had unconsciously conflated like an affectionate gesture with a sexual gesture in a way that illuminated um, this sort of historical conflation in the minds of people about um, out gay people and um, sexual molestation.
0: Yeah, and I, I always find that so interesting. I remember, so I'm 32, so I was in like elementary school in the late 90s, and I just remember, like, we, there was one male teacher in our elementary school, or at least that I can remember. And even kids would be like, "Oh, like, why is he a teacher?" Like, and he was not; he was straight. And I, th- I just, I find it so interesting. Or I'm assuming he's straight, so I actually don't know, but I think he was married to a woman. Um, But it's just so interesting, like these these connotations that male teachers get, regardless of sexual orientation in the classroom. And yes, I understand there's a lot of things that build onto the worries, but it's so fascinating that like, this is a thing that like people will just see like, oh, there's a queer teacher. He must be a deviant for no reason other than they want to say that, you know.
1: Right. And in Thomas's case, he had been like a stellar, like I'm not like Thomas in the sense that I'm a, I'm a, I'm a queer teacher. I teach adults, but um, I, I'm i not like him in the sense that I couldn't assimilate. So I was unable to, um, I was unsuccessful in convincing people that it was anything other than uh, a big queen. From the time I was a little baby queen up until now. And so um, there was like five seconds of my life when I lived in Italy, when people would assume that I was straight until I like moved or spoke. And then uh, it it would be all over. But because the clothing that people wear in Italy uh, has different signifiers than in, in where I've lived in the United States, people didn't necessarily assume just by looking at me that I was gay, but everywhere else for the beginning of time, people did. Thomas was different. He wasn't, he was able to kind of um, blend in when he needed to, and that was his strategy. And so he was successful in doing it. And he was also a beloved member of that community up until that day where, you know, the kid didn't accuse him of anything wrong. He just said the fact, Thomas touched my pants. It's where it went in the parents' imagination because usually um, folks who are molested aren't lying. When they report it and so it was really important to me that the that the um toby jay the character the boy in the book um did not say anything inaccurate it was where his parents took it um that that ended up being a little bit um well a lot problematic
0: <laughs> was it important that thomas was able to blend in i guess and and not be overly flamboyant or coded as queer right away
1: you know he was born around the same time that i was and things are really different now than before in fact somebody who was interviewing me for the book just said to me she said you know i can't believe that anybody would react this way to a gay teacher she's just like she was born in like two uh, she was born in like the 19 late 1980s or early 90s and i said okay i totally believe you but i want you to close your eyes and let's do a thought experiment count how many seconds it takes you to picture 10 faces of people that you know and love that would be concerned about an out gay man teaching fourth grade in their community. And she was just like, it took one second. So I think that you know, for Thomas, it was his survival. Um, I was curious about what it might've been like or where my life might've gone. John Cameron Mitchell, the guy that um, did Hedwig and the Angry Inch and many other projects um, has this unbelievable, podcast like theater um, hybrid artistic expression um that's um it's really it's what he calls an alternative biography and he imagines what his life would have been like had he not left home and so like john cameron mitchell i imagine what my life may have been like had i been able to pass as straight, would I have chosen to do that? And then uh, um, how would I might've used it or whatever. And so I think that it sort of started like that, but really I started with, you know, thinking of like you said about my brothers and in a in a way that was really about thematic concerns more than the actual characters in Justin Torres's book, I uh, was writing fan fiction, thematic fan fiction, I guess. Um, what does it mean to be a queer brother of three and the queer brother of three and, um, And so when this thing happened in this work situation, that's when it crystallized. And I started imagining what somebody that had played by the rules from day one might have experienced when suddenly, when, when his strategy had been working up until that point, like what happens to a person when their strategies don't work
0: anymore? Yeah. Yeah. And. With your brothers and then like writing thematically about like this situation of how how life could have been or could be. This is just a, an off topic kind of question, but like where did you go to your brothers like while writing this to like get in their heads in a way, or how did you tap into like the straight brothers.
1: Well, okay. I love my brother so much. They're two, they're both tied for first place, my favorite person. And, uh, uh, but we did not grow up together. I left home when I was 15. I had a very troubled youth. I left home when I was 15. My brother, John, had already been gone for a while, Um, not officially, but he went to school out of state. And so he was staying at his girlfriend's house a lot. And my younger brother is five years younger than me. And so we, we had reconciled after they started having children, not reconciled, but reunited after we, and getting to know one another, after they started having children. And uh, so um, then I had made up in my head that, that one of Thomas's brother gets diagnosed with cancer, which is also something that you learn early on happens to Thomas's brother Jake in the novel. And um, then it happened in real life. Like I had made it up first in my novel and then my brother Paul got diagnosed with cancer. And so I had to stop writing that part of the book during that time because it was so close to home that I just, it was filling me with like fear and anxiety for all the obvious reasons. And so that during that period of time, I focused instead on all of these buried feelings that I had had about how queer people have to um, constantly sort of and not just queer people, but marginalized people from marginalized communities are constantly, constantly having to adapt in order to fit into systems that never really included them, and then make them feel lucky that they get, get to be there in the first place, rather than uh, um, sort of focus on the value that they bring in uh, Um, those those places. And so I was thinking about this a lot too, because Obama was in office at the time that I was writing it. And so much of what was coming through the mainstream media was ignoring um, so many historical points and also just sometimes having very superficial reactions to, uh, um, what, what people were perceiving as pro- um, progress. And it was making me really, really nervous because I had lived long enough and I had lived through the first AIDS pandemic to, to, I mean, I had lived through the AIDS pandemic. And so I knew that conservatism and hyper-conservatism often follows moments of progress.
0: Well, sorry to hear your brother got cancer or was diagnosed with cancer. Um, he survived. Good. Okay. he's he Doing really, really okay. well. And I was. So I'm sh-
1: sorry to not have uh, closed that parenthesis. I got back <laughs> to it after he survived. I'm so sorry.
0: No, no. I um. Yeah. Thank you. I'll edit that so I'm not as confused. Um. So uh, that's good that he survived cancer, and you were able to go back and and put that that thread into doubting Thomas that you were had started. Um. And a- as the book progressed, as you kept writing it did you know where like Thomas's story would end up or did that kind of unfold as you were writing?
1: Well one thing that I knew was that uh, after getting accused of and I don't want to I want I don't want to do spoilers mm-hmm. but um, after Thomas gets uh, after Thomas got accused and was forced to leave his job where he was around children I did want to to force the reader to contend with, and myself, of course, to contend with putting him in a situation where he would very intimately have to be involved with children again, Mm -hmm. and to have to confront that within himself, because there's also questions about when assumed guilty before you even do anything, Mm -hmm. and then um, been made to suffer consequences as if you were guilty, even when you were found innocent through various investigations like um, Thomas was, there's still an effect that it has on the psyche of the person. And I know from personal experience that the bullshit that I grew up hearing about what gay men were like, one of the examples that I have that most illuminates this is that when, this is not in the novel, but when I was a kid and I went to Sunday school, I was given a pamphlet. This was, this came out of the imagination of some person whose job it was for the Catholic church to make pamphlets about homosexuality as a sin. And the imagination of this person conjured a man with a big bulge in his jeans, it was a cartoon drawing, Mm -hmm. giant eyelashes, exaggerated eyelashes, which this culture associates with femininity, Mm -hmm. and clutching a chain-link fence watching boys play on a playground. Now, I was like, however uh, old you are, 10 or 11 years old, I already knew that I had crushes on boys. I already knew what uh, homosexuality was because I listened to a sex therapist named Dr. Ruth Westheimer under the covers on a transistor radio at at night. Um, So I knew what homosexuality was. I probably knew that I was gay on some level without having the vocabulary for it. And I've been given this pamphlet. So, what's the rest of your life like around children, especially when your brothers mm-hmm. start having children, when you grew up with these messages? That was one of the thematic concerns that I really wanted to push in the novel, like really put my characters in super uncomfortable situations. Mm-hmm. So, I did know from early on that on some level, Thomas would have to get back in a room with kids. Um, and that plays out in the
0: novel in a particular way. Mm-hmm. But I can't talk about it without spoiler spoilers. Or, uh, oh, no, spoilers, of spoilers. Yeah, I, I always try to like dance around spoilers um, just because I, I, I feel I, I read more books after listening to an author talk than So it's like, I like when people go the opposite way and just say something happens, don't worry, you'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that idea of like the Catholic church or a- any institution, even like public schools, like denouncing homosexuality so early on to children, like this is wrong, this isn't natural or whatever they wanna say, right? That's something that's always fascinated me growing up because it's like, especially now, it's like, well, who's to say heterosexuality is the norm. It's just what's been pushed on people, children for so long, like, oh, he's a lady killer or whatever, you know, like these coded languages. that's something that's been fascinating to me um, recently anyway.
1: Yeah. And I think that in the, in the book, like the two characters, Jake and James, Thomas's brothers, both had like, even though you find out more about them as you read, and maybe they're not quite as straight as they come across in certain, in certain ways, but they both grew up sort of being, when there's a scapegoat in the community and whether that scapegoat is a, you know, because they're, a, a religious background that's different from someone else or come from a historically marginalized community where there's racism, like a, a bunch of the characters in my book are black. The, the um, the what ends up happening is that the people who are really committing those crimes don't have to take responsibility. So we see this in the culture again and again and again, where um, the focus goes on to the ostracized person rather than the person committing their crimes. And there's very clear statistics about who commits these crimes and um, who are in the lower percentages
0: that are compelling facts. Yeah. And switching topics a little bit, just getting, sorry, I want to focus more on like you as a writer as well, because I was just reading my over my notes as you were talking. Um, You've written a lot up until this point you 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 teach writing writing has been a part of your life for most of your adulthood is that correct yes yeah was writing for you growing up were you were you, were you writing growing up i mean i guess i should ask that first were you always mm-hmm. writer no, 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 no. I
1: didn't do well. Um, I, I could get by on kind of Gemini charm, gay sparkle and um, d- diversion tactics in grade school. Mm-hmm. Those things worked. And I also, you know, there was, there was, I, I found out much later that, um, that my brain works in a highly logical way. And so I, it's good at um, sort of solving complex puzzles. And so I was able to do well on, um, you know, multiple choice and those kinds of things that are essentially been proven since it being pretty useless <laughs> in <laughs> determining intelligence or whatever but I uh, um you know I was able to get by but I didn't think of myself as academic I'm I do have some um, learning differences that make um that made things tricky because of how um, learning I mean how teaching was done back in the day yeah. and so I didn't think of myself as a reader or a writer at all in fact the story about that is that I you know, and then I left home at 15 and it was completely, um, it was a high school dropout. I thought of myself as completely useless. I did pass the GRE, but again, it was one of those multiple choice tests that I had always been pretty good at. And then I came to California. I was enrolled in a junior college. And I found out that if I was interested in the subject, that I would work hard enough in order to overcome whatever the challenges that I had and that I just hadn't been in classrooms where I, w- I, I was as interested. I was also defending myself constantly after my parents moved from California to Massachusetts. And it's hard to learn when you're constantly trying to defend yourself and so are or, or also anxious about like what might happen any second. And so I think that once I was in a place of relative safety where I was interested in a subject matter, I excelled like anybody else probably would. And it wasn't until I was really 19, I had been pursuing an acting career. And I was very interested in political theater and also this kind of stuff that Larry Kramer was doing where where the AIDS crisis was really at center of what it is that I wanted to explore in creative work. But I thought that I wanted to do that on stage. There were no monologues for people of my age that were dealing, because I left home so young and because my friends were so much older than me, my two best friends died of AIDS. And so when I was left with all of that grief and anger and fury, I, I wanted to put it into acting, but I couldn't find any monologues where I could express my emotion. So I wrote them, Then I would go to these auditions, and the casting director would say, well, no thanks on the acting part, but who wrote that mark- monologue? <laughs> and I think I finally got um, the clue that, like, I, I, and also I had been volunteering in the church basement of, of, of um, this place in San Francisco that's just called Glide Church, where where it's just, known for being this incredible refuge for, for people who had been outcasted in their communities. And, um, and there's an incredible writer, Janice Mirakatani who worked there and she saw that I was always writing my notebook. Mm-hmm. And she invited me to come to a, a poetry class with her and June Jordan, these two. I had no idea who they were. Mm-hmm. And slowly, slowly that led to me going to school. You know, I got enough credits together that I was able to transfer into a four-year school. I was a se- graduating senior um, in college before I even knew what an MFA was yeah. and somebody like one of my teachers had to explain it to me what it was and then encourage me to apply for one and I thought people were crazy to go to school because I was you know every time I was in school I wasn't making enough money to pay my rent mm-hmm. so uh, I thought people were nuts to go to school beyond a bachelor's but I ended up doing that and somehow I got hired to teach too and so yes I've been writing from 19 until now
0: yeah wow And and I love to hear that that like you were you people found you. you know they they gave you an outlet and and resources to be successful. What I, and, and I don't mean successful in that way, just to to be yourself, you know unbelievably um, lucky. yeah yeah and I, and and I, I just want young writers to hear that all the time too like that can happen. You just keep keep hustling, keep writing in your notebook, you know. Um, and so between that between you know doing an MFA, and then eventually starting this book, you know, there's quite a few years, right? Because yeah, 19 to now, um, what what were you doing in between then?
1: Well, you know, I've been writing and, uh, you know, all along I have published um, shorter pieces. And I guess I have always, I come from kind of a working class background. And so for me, being a lecturer at a university is very much a working class position and you're, you're, you know, like you said, I just get to encourage young people in the same way that my uh, mentors encouraged me. And a lot of the times people that have really related to my work as a teacher are people that come from like oftentimes they're the first generation of uh, student to go to school or they come from a historically marginalized community where they hadn't seen themselves in books enough. And so I try to encourage people to uh, um you know write their own stories in a way that I think is pretty authentic because I hadn't seen the things that I wanted to read um I, I, growing up either. I, I thought that I hated reading, but I didn't hate reading. I didn't see myself in what uh, you know was being published. And I do, I want to go on record as saying that I see myself in stuff that isn't autobiographical all the time. And for me, I can see myself in the story of somebody that I share nothing in common with and have zero identity markers in common with. But if it gets to some sort of emotional truth, then I can see my humanity in that person's humanity or that character's humanity, rather. And so I finally, you know, found those writers and, uh, um, you know, with book stuff, I think that from, you know, my, my editor at Amble, Michael Nava, who's a prolific writer and an um, incredible, um, editor said to me, you know, I think that in the, the draft of Doubting Thomas that I gave him, he said, I think it could be angrier and I think it could be queerer. And I think that my writing may have been a little bit too queer for, for some um, acquiring editors and maybe not queer enough for some others and so I guess like with anybody and everyone else like timing had to be on my side and I had boring um, you know publishing industry challenges just like agencies opening and closing people switching this and that and the other thing that sometimes cause like two-year delays between getting another agent yeah. and whatever else and um, you know for me I never I had dark nights of the soul about it every once in a blue moon like if there's six, there's, there's 365 days in a year, I might've had like 20 dark. Like, is it ever going to be my turn? Am I ever going to publish a novel or whatever? And, but most of the other time, I just felt like so lucky to have lived through AIDS, to have a job that I loved, to have reconciled with my family, to have deep friendships, and to be able to do something that I loved while getting smaller bite-sized um, validation from the places that I published shorter works all along and I had really come to a point in my life where that was enough for me like I didn't I didn't ever stop writing books but I stopped pretending that I needed a book in order to validate myself as a person and um so I just kept I, I kept writing some years were more um productive than others. And like every human being I went through, I've gone through the whole uh, um, figuring out how to best take care of myself in order to maximize my creativity, um, which is trial and error. But, um, you know, that's sort of my story. I have found out, Adam, it's really funny that some of my closest friends were really worried about whether or not I would ever get a book. They were so relieved (laughs) <laughs> when I when I when I announced that I had a book, and I and I didn't announce it for a long time after I knew, but when I when I announced it finally, like some of my friends like burst into tears. One of them like cried for five minutes nonstop, oh, wow. and I realized like, oh, he was anxious mm-hmm. um, about me getting a book, but I, I really wasn't. Um, some days it was hard, but yeah. most of the time I didn't even think about
0: it. I just love that you have like friends and loved ones who care so much about your work, regardless if it's published or not. Like I know he, your friend was anxious if it would actually be out there in the world, but the fact that like they cared is just amazing.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I have the absolute best friends and community out of tied for first
0: place with yes. with everybody else that feels that way. And, and you mentioned like you can connect with books even if they don't necessarily have identifying markers as similar as you, as long as there's an emotional truth. What books recently have you been enjoying or finding yourself in in some ways
1: well i promise i'll answer that question i do want to say though that there's like there's a couple of books that really informed this book that are completely Mm, crazy 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 that i would have never guessed for example i reluctantly read gilead by marilyn robinson because i wasn't interested in a point of view christian older guy married to a younger woman writing a letter to his son i just felt like if you were to give me It was just like 100% of the plot points that I read about were uninteresting to me, but she was coming to San Francisco State And I read it and I was blown away by it, completely blown away by it. And she used very simple language. I had been working on a very voice-driven piece that's very poetic in style. Um, And I was just like, I was sick of it. And it was also in the first person. So I wanted to see what what it would be like for me to strip down all of the tricks that I thought I was pretty good at and see if I could just write simple declarative sentences and see whether or not that would work for me. And then for whatever reason, autobiography of my mother by Jamaica Kincaid which is you know at the time that it came out it got some reviews that i think you know the the people doing the reviews didn't really try to inhabit what she was doing they were more comparing it to other more common book like more common plot like arrangements that people use in within novels but i also felt like she was like really reflecting on a really 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 bunch of very very difficult situations and I thought I was interested in like how do you keep a reader's attention when like bad thing after bad thing after bad thing because Thomas loses his job in my novel but that's just the beginning of his bad year he has like a really really bad year (laughs) and so how does one keep a reader's attention if that's the truth of some people's experience that I wanted to illuminate um you know Paula Sicki's Lawn Boy is something that I'm rereading now, and. in anticipation of uh, a conversation that he and I are gonna have. And I just, I, I absolutely loved that book for so many reasons. Dorothy Allison's bastard out of Carolina, even though I wasn't born in the South, had a huge influence on me. Sula by Toni Morrison is the single most instructive novel I have ever read on the topic of characterization and or I mean I love that novel so much so that it's I can't I can barely study it but when I listen to students who have to study it talk about it I realize that it's an absolute masterclass in every element of composition and form especially characterization, um, but lately lately I've been re- reading um, Maya Jeffra, who's a wonderful writer. He's one of the editors of uh, Foglifter magazine that published an early part of Doubting Thomas. He wrote a collection of short stories that's really wonderful called The Violence Almanac. Um, I loved what um, Juli, um, Juli Delgado Lapera wrote, late, her book, Fiebre Tropical is an, is an incredible book that plays with form. Um, Deshawn Charles Winslow recently published a book in the last few years called In West Mills that I just finished. He, He, I also found out was highly influenced by the novel Sula. And then also somebody that I went to graduate school, Patrick Ryan, um, wrote a collection of short stories called If We Were Electric that blew my mind. There's many more. I just mentioned some queer ones since we're, um, you know, we're heading into Pride Month here when recording this.
0: A huge thank you to Matthew Clark Davison for coming on the Day Beautiful podcast today. If you want to learn more about the author, please visit him at matthewclarkdavison.com. His Instagram is matthewclarkdavison. His Twitter is Matthew C. Davison. Please support Downey Thomas and Ample Press by picking it up at your local independent bookstore. Thank you so much for supporting Day Beautiful. Please visit daybeautiful.net for more book recommendations and author interviews. You can also find me on social media at Day Beautiful for Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Everything you can think of, Day Beautiful is there. As always, I'm Adam. This is Day Beautiful. And you're all beautiful.